probably the biggest one is making sure that we get the assortment on shelf correct and really stock up on the products that are going to move the needle and are most important to the shopper and the consumer. The second piece, honestly, we need to get better from a forecasting standpoint. And I think that's where some of these advanced technologies start coming in. Artificial intelligence, the machine learning, the understanding and really honing in on what we think a certain promotion or a certain time of year are going to do. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Retail Mavericks Podcast. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hivery. Hivery is the pioneer in hyperlocal retailing. By combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models, Hivery's suite of products helps CPGs and retailers generate a return on physical retail space investment. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Daniel Sturman, a category team leader for Grocery Channel for Nestle USA. Dan has a track record of 10 and a half years at Nestle. So today, we'll kick this episode off with Dan explaining what exactly it is that he does at Nestle. So I've got a, a team of 10 individuals across the U.S. that work directly with each one of our strategic retailer partners, whether it be Publix or Albertson Safeway, H-E-B, Meyer, And basically what my team's objectives are to make sure that we are providing the utmost best strategic and insightful support to each one of our retailer partners within the categories that we support. So Nestle owns a whole bunch of brands, everything from items down your frozen pizza aisle, like DiGiorno and California Pizza Kitchen and Jack's to the dairy case with Coffee Mate Liquid. We're basically all over the store. So what my team does is, again, working very closely with each one of the retailers just to make sure that they are looking forward, not backwards, and building a strategic plan to win in the future in their markets. I can see how your team would be especially relevant given the changes the pandemic has brought across all industries and retail being no exception. Reflecting on 2020, what are key two to three challenges in category management that you have come across? That's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, with everything that's happened in 2020, the shopper journey and their path to purchase has really been flipped on its head. And, and we have seen, quite frankly, significant shifts in the way shoppers buy products and the way consumers are, are using those products. And that includes everything from this massive shift from in-store with grocery retailers to Omni and Ecom. When you look at how quickly the shopper has ramped up, we are about five years ahead of where everyone thought we were going to be at this point. Depending on the category specifically that you look at, some categories have seen five, six, seven, almost 10 times the growth that would be expected when it comes to e-com. And you look at some of the reporting that's been coming out over the last couple of weeks, whether it be Target claiming that their online is up 200%, similar numbers coming from Walmart, as well as a lot of the other grocers. And 
those retailers, frankly, that were not as invested as they could have been at this point in time have, have fallen a little bit behind because they are not able to support this drastic shift that we've seen the shopper taking on their journey. So I'd say that was probably one of the biggest challenges that we've had. The, the second major one that I, I wanted to call out would be just from an in-stock standpoint, in our industry, we've gotten to a point where we have almost given shoppers in some cases too many choices. Where you walk down the aisle and there's hundreds and hundreds of items in a category. One of the one of my favorite examples, and quite frankly, whether it's Nestle or all of the other manufacturers, if you go down a frozen foods aisle, there's 13, 14, 15 different lasagnas in the frozen meals case. And a lot of those are Nestle's, some of them are ConAgra, some of them are Michelangelo, and there's a lot of different brands that are in there. But at the end of the day, you have 15 different cheese lasagnas. And what this has really shown us is we don't particularly need 15 different cheese lasagnas because when the pandemic hit, there were rampant out of stocks because every single item had one facing and you didn't have the days of supply. The shopper was walking down the aisle and bulk purchasing whatever they could find on the shelf instead of walking through and just cherry picking exactly what they had always had. And that was very eye-opening for, I think, many manufacturers and many retailers that we might have gotten a little out of control with the amount of assortment that we carried. In regards to the paradox of choice that you're alluding to, I have heard this issue being raised by more than a handful of my guests at this point. I'm interested in hearing your take on your approach to tackling this problem at Nestle. So I think we have to take a step back, right? We as an industry have become very, very focused on if we're going to win in this market, it's all about having more items on shelf. And you see this with a lot of large manufacturers and frankly, more and more with smaller manufacturers where it's line extension after line extension after line extension that's being launched. And retailers are launching private label items that mirror 100% the top moving national brands that are in the category. And when that happens, you lose sight a little bit of why the shopper is shopping the aisle, why there is someone that buys the product and consumes it at home, right? So really taking a step back and getting back to just grassroots and understanding, okay, why is the shopper shopping this category? What true problem are they trying to solve for that's bringing them down the aisle to buy this product? A really good example of this at the end of the day, we are experiencing at Nestle gangbuster growth within the baking aisle. Our baking division has seen the best growth that we've seen probably in the last five years. And it's super interesting because if you had talked to me in 2019, 2018, 2017, the baking category was struggling. And that's because when you talk to millennials, when you talk to younger consumers, if you were to go out and you were to ask them, okay, just the most basic of baking questions, how many teaspoons are in a tablespoon? Less than 50% of millennials could answer that, which is mind-blowing, right? Because that's like the basics of baking. But now that everyone's stuck at home, it's not so much that there's been a renaissance in baking just because people want cookies. 
there's been a renaissance in baking because people have found out that it's actually bringing them together. It's an opportunity for the family to gather around and do an activity that's going to bring them closer. So it's not about launching a, another chocolate chip or another chocolate morsel with 5% more cacao as a line extension. It's about how do you really make sure that you're communicating to the shopper that this product is going to solve a need. In this case, people are stuck at home and looking for something to do. Dan, earlier you have mentioned that there have been a lot of changes in shoppers' behavior. Can you perhaps share a successful as well as an unsuccessful example of a product launch done by Nestle when trying to address these changes and appeal to an evolved consumer? Sure. So I'll, I'll start with a successful one and then remind me, don't like keep me honest on this, <laughs> to come back to one that maybe wasn't as successful. But one of our most, more successful launches has been um, this whole thought process around the fact that we are borderline or depending on what metric you look at, stock market may be completely different than unemployment rates and things like that. We are either bordering on or already in a recession coupled with a pandemic that people can't leave their home. So there's two ahas that should be seen immediately right there. People cannot leave their house and they're trying to stretch their dollar further, right? And we took those two insights and basically said, okay, what is one of the most popular things people currently consume from a beverage standpoint in the US? Coffee. People consume coffee at a higher rate than they consume water in the US, which is <laughs> which is pretty crazy in and of itself. So Individuals who are unfortunately in a position where they can no longer go and spend $5 on a latte at Starbucks because one, can't leave their house, and two, they don't potentially have the $5 in their pocket anymore. How do we give them something that is going to mimic not only taste, but the quote unquote status that they would feel when they walk into a Starbucks and order a white chocolate mocha or a vanilla latte or something like that? So we launched the Starbucks creamers line in retail, it is a premium price point to everything else in the category, and rightfully so, is a very, very good product. But we've seen tremendous success in that because at the end of the day, we're giving the shopper or giving the consumer exactly what they're looking for, which is an elevated experience, a bit of a status symbol in a trying time where they might not be able to enjoy all the things that they have been able to in the past. So what about the unsuccessful launch? I'm just trying to keep you honest here. <laughs> the issue that we ran into. So let's talk about a launch that we had within Hot Pockets a little while back, which we will refer to as our Hot Pockets food truck line. It was a product that started out with a really cool thought process. It was bringing items that you would typically find at a food truck, that flavor profile, that style of meal, which was all the rage currently. We wanted to bring those items and bring that flavor profile into individuals' houses. And, and unfortunately, at the end of the day, we missed the mark because we focused too much on trying to make sure that the items themselves stayed within this safer, hot pocket type overarching brand where if anyone that's ever had a Hot Pocket, we never really step too, too far out the box and make it too spicy. We never step too, too far out the box and make it too, too bold. 
I mean, the boldest that we would go was potentially buffalo chicken. But when you go to a food truck, you're getting things with aioli on them and all these bold types of flavors. And it's very cutting edge. And we were like, okay, you know what? Hot Pockets might be the right brand for that. So we went to launch it. And then we kind of tailored it back to play within the brand versus keeping the, the shopper or the consumer center of mind and saying, you know what? At the end of the day, this might not be the safest thing to launch. It may not have the highest dollar ring at the beginning, but it's going to be the most incremental because there's nothing like that that currently exists in the category. Consumers can't find it right now in, in their, down their aisle. They have to go out and find it at a food truck or one of these niche little mom pop shops. But I guess when you're looking to say whether it was something successful or not, this will fall into the 95% of products that don't make the cut and, and fall off the grocery shelf. Going back to that assortment discussion that we had before that we may have gotten ahead of ourselves as an industry putting too many items on the shelves but we overly focused on fitting something into a brand rather than putting the shopper and the customer first and saying okay here's what the the solution they're looking for is how do we build it around them Dan you were a team leader of a category leadership team and just like any retailer manufacturer or team there are KPIs that you need to hit each quarter and year. I imagine that 2020 has been different in understanding what success looks like. What are your thoughts on this? That's a great question because at the end of the day, when we sit down, any number that anyone had down on paper for what they thought they were going to do for 2020 has just imploded in their face. And you see a lot of that with the out-of-stocks. Our out-of-stocks, similar to many manufacturers, we struggled on some of our businesses pretty significantly as we move through the year. When you have businesses up 30, 40, 50%, and I mean, when the pandemic first hit, there were certain businesses that we had that were seeing 120% growth over four or five week periods of time. So when you're not set up as a company to basically be able to fulfill that kind of demand, you you get yourself into a tight spot. So for my team specifically, and the way that I look at category management for Nestle right now is making sure that we keep our retailers and our sales counterparts and our divisions all honest and not lose sight of, we still need to be planning down the road. We still need to be looking at these major initiatives, the demographics that we really want to target that are important to them. We can't lose sight of things like sustainability, which is going to be one of the next big things that when we get to Gen Z is most important to them, making sure that you put something that is made from 100% recyclable or something that is 100% sustainably sourced. We can't lose sight of that just because we are in a tough spot right now and it's all about getting items on the shelves. I've had a couple conversations with retailers where I've gone in with my team, gone in air quotes, where we virtually met with a retailer and had a conversation with them. And they started the conversation with, well, I don't want to talk to you until you fix my in stocks or you have product on my shelf or you stop shorting me XYZ product. And look, at the end of the day, if that's all you're going to focus on, you're going to find yourself six months to 12 months down the road where you no longer have a strategy in place and any of the other retailers or manufacturers that were continuing to keep a focus long-term, you're going to get left behind them. So I know you're angry. Like I know it's not 
that's not great, but we need to make sure we continue to focus and continue to invest in areas that are really going to drive your categories, the retailers, and for the manufacturers, their brands in the future. I can imagine that in the last year, everyone has really leveled up their interpersonal skills. <laughs> so based on what you're saying, it sounds like you really need to plan for a number of variables because you simply don't know what's going to happen. With so many variables at hand, how do you do that? I was having a conversation with someone else in the industry the other day, and I think they summed it up the best I've heard it this far. We can plan as much as we want, and the only thing that we can be guaranteed is that we are going to be wrong. It's just how wrong are we going to be should be the goal. We should be as close to, as close to possible as what we project, but no one's going to get it right. Because you go back a couple months, no one projected that the pandemic was going to shut down an entire nation to the extent that it did. You can argue that if the pandemic didn't happen, there may not have been a change in leadership in the U.S. And maybe Biden would not have beat out Trump, which then in turn changes policies for the next four years. And that just continues to snowball. If anyone could tell me right now what Super Bowl in February of 2021 is going to look like, from a sales standpoint, in a category like frozen pizza, where that is a must-win time frame for retailers and manufacturers, I'm all ears because we don't even know if the game is going to happen at this point. Considering the NFL is having problems playing games, I mean, right before we got on this call, there was an NFL game on on a Wednesday at 2:30 p.m. That's never happened before because they're literally shoving games in where they can find them. So it's things like that where you really do need to plan for all the variables. Okay, let's think about this. If the Super Bowl happens, people can't gather. If people can't gather, does that mean they're going to be ordering carryout delivery from companies like Pizza, from Domino's? Is there a higher probability that then, hey, they're going to have a frozen pizza in their freezer? So that's an opportunity for us to get the product. There's no tailgating that's going to be happening. And again, this is all if the game even happens. So it's one of those things where fairly often nowadays, we get a group of us together and we, we basically do war games to basically sit there and say, okay, if this happens, how would we react? How would other manufacturers react? How would retailers react? And try and plan through as many of these scenarios as possible. And inevitably, there's going to be something that we don't plan for. It's impossible. To, to get every single one right. But at least by doing this, we are some in some semblance prepared for whatever curveball we get thrown. Dan, you touch on a very interesting topic of trying to retain retailers and customers and maintaining those relationships. What are some tactics and actions that you have developed and taken in order to retain those relationships and perhaps even foster them. If I walk into a re- or I, I speak to a retailer virtually and say, you know, what is your plan? Like, what do you focus on? How do you expect to succeed in the next 6, 12, 18 months? Almost every single one says the same thing. Well, we're going to keep the shoppers that we got during COVID. And that's <laughs> in turn where the strategy ends. They don't understand how to do that, what tactics they need to pull. They just know that because of everything that's been turned on its head, significantly more shoppers have walked through their front door. A fun one that we looked at within Target, for example, 
we noticed a category multi-serve frozen meals was exploding at Target. It was absolutely on fire. And one of the questions was, well, why? The demographic at Target historically doesn't buy these large $10 plus serves five to 12 people meals. Why all of a sudden is the category on fire and we can't keep things in stock? Well, when you look a little bit deeper and you look at basically what our shoppers were telling us, across all the different grocers in the US, Target bubbled to the top as the retailer most likely to be shopped for the first time for groceries by the general population. Okay, so now we know all of a sudden the, the shopper base at Target has expanded. So what is that doing to the demographics of the shoppers? All of a sudden, two different demographics bubbled to the top, households of greater than five and households of one. Now, the greater than five makes a heck of a lot of sense. You're buying large, large size meals, right? So now that you've got a larger family shopping Target, that makes complete sense. But the one is still head scratching. Dig a little bit deeper. That one person household is buying serving size eight to 12 meals because they're pinching their dollar and they're making it once and they have leftovers for four days. So all of a sudden, just by kind of following that trail of breadcrumbs and understanding, okay, you've got a retailer who is basically now in a consideration set where they never have been before. Because of that, new people are walking through the front door that are different than their typical demographic of shoppers. And because of that, they're buying products and products that are coming off the shelf in categories that typically weren't fast-moving categories are changing. So then you sit down and you have the conversation with the retailer who <laughs> typically is beating you over the head for in-stocks and say, look, you have an opportunity here. You have new shoppers. You can either delight them and expand your assortment and focus on this new demographic to make sure you're delighting them so that they come back. Or you can do things as you've always had. And once the pandemic ends, go back to your typical shopper base and these shoppers that had to walk through your front door because they didn't have anywhere else to go, let them go back to their normal shopping habits as well. Dan, you repeatedly raised the issue of out-of-stocks as well as the paradox of choice, meaning an excessive amount of assortment. How do you propose retailers can get the right products at the right price, at the right place, at the right time in front of consumers? We as, a, as an industry need to be more focused on putting the right assortment in front of the shopper versus line extensions and just continuing to throw more and more at them. A great example of this from a, an industry manufacturer would be Danone. So Danone just announced that they're going to be eliminating more than 2,000 of their SKUs in 2021 for purposes of making sure that one, they become more efficient with their supply chain similar to what we were talking about and being able to adapt and move very, very quickly, depending on what happens. But that also alleviates some of the pressure right on the retailer to make sure that, okay, I don't feel like I need to carry as much assortment. I, I have all the assortment from a major manufacturer like a Danone or like a Nestle. I have the complete assortment, but I still have the ability to make sure that what I'm carrying from an on-shelf perspective is enough to get me through times of influx where there'll be an increase in buyers. How can manufacturers reduce the amount of their SKUs while ensuring that they're putting the right assortment in front of their consumers? Probably the biggest one is making sure that we get 
the assortment on shelf correct and really stock up on the products that are going to move the needle and are most important to the shopper and the consumer. The second piece, honestly, we need to get better from a forecasting standpoint. And I think that's where some of these advanced technologies start coming in. Artificial intelligence, the machine learning, the understanding and really honing in on what we think a certain promotion or a certain time of year are going to do. One of the data scientists that worked for Nestle just did a presentation the other day to the greater part of the organization around hurricane season and what categories across the retail store we see the greatest lifts in for hurricane season, for stock up purchases and things like that. How many days in advance do people come in and start loading up on product when the news reports that a hurricane is going to be coming through? We've never really candidly looked at that information before. We'll say, yeah, there's an opportunity to try and upsell product or talk to the retailer and say, hey, make sure that you you order a couple extra cases and have it available on shelf. But we haven't in the past, per se, brought that thought leadership to a, a retailer, nor has the retailer asked for it, to understand what events like this are going to do to their in-stock rates. Dan, can you shed some light on the forecasting process? It's a very desegregated way, at least at Nestle, and I I can't speak industry-wide, but the way we've typically done forecasting for us has been we have an account manager who is ground floor. I mean, they're the ones closest to the customer. They put in a forecast into the system, our baseline forecast. If something changes, if there is a new promotion that's going to be going and running. They they put that in there. They put a lift in. They say, here's what I think this additional promotion is going to do. That is then mirrored. And we have individuals who sit in the headquarter offices who then review what they believe the forecast is going to be. So we start matching that up. We then have a demand planning group, which is part of our supply chain group that then also looks at the information. So We have three, four different groups all looking at forecasting simultaneously and then trying to triangulate and figure out, okay, what's the true number, what it's going to look like. And I'd say that historically, we've been pretty good with it. What we haven't been good with is when something throws us a curveball and being able to drop and adapt on a dime the hurricanes that I referenced before, a snowstorm actually winds up coming through and happening. A global pandemic with COVID, it really puts a strain on the supply chain. And that's where now you're playing catch up, right? Because your supply chain has been strained. Now you're trying to find ways to ramp it up. You're trying to find ways to get more product out into the market. So yeah. As a category manager, if you want to be at the forefront of retail revolution and utilize technologies like artificial intelligence to help facilitate a faster business decision-making process and implement more accurate predictions at a hyper-local level into your operations, I suggest you check out hybrid.com forward slash product forward slash curate. Dan, another side to the pandemic is that the number of customers opting into e-commerce has grown this past year. And with retailers and manufacturers trying to respond to this trend, can you speak to the success of that response and the overall shopping experience to date? And how do you expect it to evolve in the near future? 
the extreme increase in adoption for grocery with Omni, it is going to continue to be elevated. We've planned a couple different scenarios. We've planned that it continues to grow slightly. We've planned that it'll remain a little bit flat. We've also planned a little bit of a, a pullback initially as people are like, yeah, I can get it out of my house. I'm like, I'm going to do something else. So I don't know that we're going to still see these extreme increase, but all the data we're seeing, depending on what outlet you, you speak to, anywhere between 60 and 95 people have said, hey, look, now that I've bought groceries from Omni and I've had a good experience, I'm going to do it again. So these customers aren't going to go 100% back and swing the spectrum the complete other way where they're going to be only grocery shopping in store before like they were before. They're, they are going to continue to be to use these different Omni approaches, whether it be shift to home or a shift or Instacart or a curbside, any of those options. I had never used Omni Grocery before. I had never purchased groceries online. And uh, a couple months back, I was like, oh, you know what? I've got to, this is my shopper. Like, I need to understand this. So I went on a six-month test, sample size of one, Dan where all I bought was groceries online. I only used shipped and had groceries delivered to my house. Doesn't matter if it was one item, doesn't matter if it was 40 items and it was a $250 basket rent. I only brought groceries online because I wanted to understand some of the pitfalls that you would experience both from a retailer and a manufacturer standpoint, as well as some of the highlights and things that went really, really well when you bought things online. And one of the things that I learned was I found myself very often just going back to my prior buys and hitting buy again over and over and over and over and over again. I would just rebuy the same items, which I noticed as someone who's in the industry, I wasn't looking for new innovation. I was going and I was buying the same item again. And God forbid the item was out of stock on shelf. If the item was out of stock on shelf, I didn't know what to do because I wasn't there to look at the shelf. I wasn't there to decide, oh, well, this isn't out. Let me pick this item up, spin it around, look at the nutrition, look at the ingredients, look at everything about it, look at the price. I had someone send me a picture of the aisle and I'm trying to enlarge it on my phone and look, look at what the other options look like on shelf. And the shopping experience was terrible. So I think it's going to change very, very much when it comes to impulse buys and switching of items within a category and manufacturers are going to need to get creative because right now a lot of what we're doing is we purchase the ability from the third party the pure play or from the retailer to get our item in the category to the top of the list and depending on what retailer you're working with some of them mandate that their private label is going to be two of the four pictures that are shown on the cell phone. Some of them say it'll be the top selling item, one private label, and then two of the additional slots are for sale. So past that, I mean, that's great. That's, that's a start. But we need to get very, very creative on how we make sure we're reaching out to these shoppers and keeping their eyes open to new items that hit the shelves. Otherwise, we're basically damning new item innovation to fail for those individuals who are only shopping online. Do you think retailers are well positioned for omni and e-commerce? I'm particularly interested in the issue around the cost for this convenience. Who pays for it and what are the long-term implications? No matter if a retailer was advanced and was able to 
handle the ramp up quickly or it took them a couple months to get up to speed if it was an in-house or they were using a pure play provider like a, a shift or an instacart in all instances as it stands today retailers are losing money when it comes to omni it is much more expensive for the labor to do curbside to get the product and deliver it to a shopper in all instances this is a margin decretive opportunity for most retailers and in turn they're pushing a lot of that back on the manufacturer and this brings up a really really interesting point which is the intersection that has existed for as long as time and as long as commerce has happened which is as convenience increases typically so does cost and when you look at delivery for pizza when you order a pizza from Domino's or Pizza Hut, there's a delivery charge that is associated with it. It is more expensive for them to bring it to your front door than it is for you to go pick it up. When you go to the city and you take a taxi, the taxi is more expensive than taking the subway because the taxi is more convenient than the subway. There is a million examples that I can provide that will show as convenience increases, cost disproportionately increases. Well, for whatever reason as an industry, we have decided that we are going to pass none of that cost onto the customer. And because we have passed none of the costs, for the most part, onto the customer, this has become margin accretive for everyone in the industry. So retailers are making less money and trying to figure out how to charge manufacturers more money. And they've, they've looked at it in, in two different ways. Either it's a straight up fee, that they're going to put on everything that's sold through the register or many of the retailers that we work with are launching what they call their media networks, which is an in-house group that does advertising where manufacturers work directly with them and they run their ads through them. They run commercials, they run things online through them and you pay the retailer to run stuff on their website, which quite frankly, at the end of the day, hits most of the bottom line for these retailers. But at the end of the day, that just creates a margin decretive atmosphere for everyone. Everyone is getting pennies pinched and their margins are becoming dilutive. But you're not passing any of that cost onto the customer. And as it stands right now, there's one of two things that can happen. We as an industry can find out either A, how to do this cheaper, how to do Omni more efficiently so it costs less money, or B, at some point in time, we are going to have to push some of the costs onto the shopper, onto the consumer, which at the end of the day, some will pay for, some won't. But we're at a standstill right now where it could go in one or two different directions. And it'll be very interesting over the next 12 months to see which way it goes. Another subtopic within the larger world of Omni and e-commerce that I want to raise today is efficiency. Can you speak to the current situation and potentially how can retailers become more efficient? What we're seeing is that there's a couple different options that are out there. I mean, you have retailers like Target, right? At the end of the day, when they talk about Omni, they say we have over 1,800 different distribution centers for our guests that buy online or want to have something delivered. They're referring to their stores, right? At the end of the day, they're using their stores as distribution centers for their Omni 
go-to-market strategy. You also have or, uh, other retailers. Amazon's a really good example. When the pandemic kicked off, they actually halted the opening of one of their stores in LA and turned it into a dark store for Amazon purchases for grocery, where there weren't shoppers in there. But when someone's ordered groceries to be delivered to their house, they had people walking a dark store picking items. I also believe while that might be a step in the right direction, it's still wildly inefficient. You still have someone walking all over a store picking items. Yes, they're not dodging shoppers and they don't have to stop and answer questions for anyone, but it's still wildly inefficient. And then you have what some of these retailers are doing, i.e. Kroger, for example, that have these completely automated back rooms where it is very, very simple. An, an order comes in, the automation in the back room happens, the boxes move around all over the place, it fulfills an order, spits it out, someone can pick it up, and they can deliver it to you. The upfront cost on that is extremely expensive. Secondly, you look at the stores that currently exist, the back rooms are not set up to retrofit something like that. It just, it won't work. But you look at some retailers that are just starting to open up stores, i.e. Amazon, who don't particularly outside of Whole Foods have a footprint yet, that's a massive opportunity for them. If they could start launching grocery stores that were completely automated in the back room for delivery, they've solved a whole bunch of the cost on the back end. And let's be honest, Amazon has a lot of cash in their pocket to be able to invest in the front end that many of these other retailers don't. To finish our conversation today, Dan, I know that I've asked you a lot of questions, but I'm sure that there is something that you wish people would have asked you more often. What is that question? I guess for me, one of the biggest things that I, I see very often within our industry, and specifically category management, depending on the brand that you're working on, the retailer you're talking to, we need to make sure that we continue to adapt the way we talk and the way we interact with the retailers, right? So often in category management, we can get lost in one of two areas. We can get lost in the number side and just talk and talk and talk about TDP and POS and household penetration and frequency and things like that. And look, you stare at numbers long enough, you're going to go crazy and you're going to find patterns that potentially don't exist. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the qualitative piece being understanding what's in the heart of the consumer and understanding why they shop your store and why they buy your brand and talking about things like loyalty and what's really important to them. And we talked a little bit about that when uh, I referenced earlier around the coffee mate or the uh, Starbucks situation. What are they truly looking to accomplish when they buy these items? And when you're successful, what I've seen and what I wish more people would ask me is how do you blend those two things together? How do you blend together the logic of what people are buying with the why on why they're buying it? So often you, you hear people say, oh, I, I won't take this unless it's margin. Okay, well, that's or the quantitative side. Or, you know, tell me what is the reason to believe? Like, why is this item different from a consumer behavior standpoint or going to generate different consumer behavior than something I already have on my shelf? That's the qualitative. I wish people would ask more how we marry those two things together. And don't just live in one realm or the other, because when you marry them together, it's just 
the output that you get is so eye-opening and so crystal clear. This is what we need to do to win, whether it be a manufacturer or a retailer. It's crazy. Thank you for taking the time to listen until the end of this podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you don't want to miss out on new releases, don't forget to subscribe. There's also plenty of good episodes already out there that you can listen to in the meantime. So stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.